Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Okay, post-prime Roger Federer is starting to get a little ridiculous at this point. You're very welcome to Monday's Second Cups Podcast. I'm here if I can. Hello there, all. The last year before this one, the Federer had won more than one title in the same year. It was 2009. Up until that point, he'd won 15 Grand Slams before they started to get a little harder to come by. Okay. But they're starting to flow again now. We're going to have to grapple with the idea that post-prime Federer, that's from 2009 on, mm-hmm. if you haven't heard us talking about this phenomenon before in the show, is in his own right on the way to becoming one of the greatest players of all time. <laughs> Four Grand Slam wins now since 2009. If he can churn out two more, he's level with Boris Becker. <laughs> Another one on top of that, he'll have caught John McEnroe. And if we give him one more again, not inconceivable. So, eight more. If, oh, we, sorry, if we get him up to eight, yeah. If we get so another four after this. Yeah, he'll be open to Jimmy Connors' Fred Perry country. Wow. That is the second coming of Roger Federer. It's also good news for full career Roger Federer, mm. <laughs> who is now four clear of Rafa He's Nadal probably not going to win four more, though, is he? I would have said he probably wasn't going to win two this year, though. Yeah. I think he could win. I mean, it is uh, the very definition of the law of diminishing returns, though. I mean, the man is getting... I mean, we have checked. He is getting older, right? Yeah, but all the other tennis players better, are though. all the other tennis players are also past it. So yeah, well, injured or whatever. Yeah, pass it in. Yeah, pass it in in different ways. Yeah, Djokovic. I don't know mental what's going burnout on. or has whatever, had some issues. There's always these issues in his private life that get referenced. I don't know. I don't know what that means, and I'm not just being obtuse about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly what happened there, but certainly. Physically, he doesn't look the same player. Nadal will win the French Open every year for the next few years, sure. But whether he's able to get his body to win anything else, I don't know. Murray just isn't quite at that level. He's he's sporadically at that level, but he's not a Federer's level, let's be honest about it. And there aren't any other tennis players in the world, so <laughs> things are looking pretty good. I did see you tweet, Ken, that if he's regularly winning slams at nearly 36, tennis has problems. I can't name any players under 30. Well, th- which is just another way of saying I am incredibly ignorant. I am an ignorant man. Proudly but displaying, yeah, proudly proud displaying my ignorance, ignorance yeah. to the to the world, which uh, which is never 
a good uh, tweet did, template. Did people start texting you Naming or like you back? You know? Milo Raonic and all these guys. Yeah. Well, people made the point. Well, Mar- Marin Silic, he was in the final against Federer, is under 30, isn't he? Yeah, but, you know, I'd literally never heard of this guy until I saw him in the semifinal the other day. Yeah, he has won a US Open. <laughs> I know. See, this is, this is the thing. I mean, people, were, people made the point, well, this just shows you don't follow tennis. And I was like, yeah, I don't. I used to, but I don't anymore. It's, 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 very, it's a lot easier to ignore tennis, I think, these days than it was when I was a kid. How so? You, you've, you're talking about the greatest era, by common consensus, of certainly men's tennis ever. And in women's, you've probably got the greatest player of all time. And yet you find it more boring it's, than, than, than the Michael Sick winning Wimbledon days? It's been the same for 10 years. I mean, it's longer than that. Uh, I mean, the, the matches between Federer and Nadal, like the Wimbledon finals they had in 2007, 2008, were incredible. I, he's still winning. Eleven, nine years later, mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't expect when I was watching them, you know, the, at their sort of peak. And actually, Federer was even then slightly past his peak <laughs> because if he'd been absolutely at his peak, Nadal never would have had a chance. Uh, the The last thing I expected was that you know, in a decade's time, this guy would still be winning, hmm. and I wouldn't know any of the other players. There's nothing really. There's nothing coming through. I mean, you have to, I, in my opinion. When you're looking at him winning these these championships, he's a great player. He's the best player there's ever been. But Not where yet. are where are all the other players? I mean, Pete Sampras was a great player as well. I remember watching him getting knocked out of Wimbledon by the 19 year old Roger Federer, who obviously at the time I was like, well, you know, this kid, whoever he is, is unlikely to be able to beat Pete Sampras. And well, great players sort of, sort of come along. When you, when you look when you look at great players of the past, the reason they didn't win as many is because there was I think new players but coming since, through all the time. Yeah, but they. Well, Nadal has come through since then, uh, since uh, those days when Roger Federer beat Pete Sampras. Nobody, Novak Djokovic nobody has come along. Andy 30. Murray's come along, and then some other slightly lesser lights, but Del Potro and well, they were well, they're all around thirty now. As in Nadal, they're all over thirty. Well, Murray's, Federer's, Murray's, Federer's Murray's nearly thirty-six. No, no, no. But Murray is thirty. Djokovic is thirty. Yeah. And Nadal's. I'll check Nadal's age now. Um, thirty-three. So maybe? those guys have all come along and have created this unbelievable era of tennis and now they are starting to fall away possibly before well, they're, they're, Federer, they're, they've won shocking. all the, they've won all the grand slams so far this year so they're not really starting to fall away they're still his rivals at the I'm top. talking about yeah. are starting to fall away oh Federer's rivals yeah. yeah I just I remember when I when I was a kid watching Wimbledon in like the late 80s and Jimmy Connors would be in it every year and it was like ah oh, we'll go over to court 75 to see Jimmy Connors uh, and he would be there charming this crowd of 50 people uh, doing little gags and all this because he, he was, now that he was basically a retired sort of wild card entry in Wimbledon, he was kind of a, a gags man. The famous, exactly. The famously intense uh, Jimmy Connors, you know, a, a humorless uh, winning machine had turned into a sort of a gags man trading uh, gags with the crowd and clowning around. And it was hilarious. It was like, oh, this is great. You know, what a, what a, this is great. Jimmy Connors is here, and everyone knows he's got no chance to win. He's just here to sort of have a bit of a laugh because he loves Wimbledon so much. Same age as Federer is now. You know? There was never any chance of Connors. Connors Jimmy Connors was a great player. He was world number one for longer than anybody else at that time. And uh, there was never any chance he could win because there was players in their prime who were always going to sure, beat him. Sure, but Roger Federer is a better tennis player than Jimmy Connors and is a better tennis player than probably anybody. You're coming at it very much from the point of view of t- there must be something wrong with tennis that this guy can still be winning. There should, yeah, the, there's just something incredibly right with what Roger Federer does. Mm, there, obviously there is. He's, I'm not denying that he's a great player, but 
you shouldn't still be able to win Grand Slam tournaments at 36. You know, it's not... Uh, it's uh, 30, 35 and 11 months. It's interesting, though, that... Uh I mean, you're talking about people who are under 30 or over 30. Nadal is 31 on, just by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan Wawrinka is 32. Djokovic and Murray are 30. I mean, it's not really those guys. It's not the people who are under 30. It's the guys who are just over 20, really, that you're kind of pointing the finger at here, really, more well, than the, anything else. The, I mean, the, the, new, the new supply of talent doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's easier to focus on your game when you're 20 or 21 when you feel like you've got a decent chance of winning Grand Slam, but basically these four guys have strangled the life out of all of the up and coming players. I mean, and I agree wholeheartedly. Pete Sam- I mean, there's Pete something Sampras wrong was, here. Pete Sampras was doing that, yeah, and Roger a, Federer, you know, yeah, but there's, like, that's only one guy. You know, I mean, the, the idea is that there's got to be someone else to play Pete Sampras in all of these Grand Slam finals that he was winning, all those Wimbledon finals, and that in itself was the carrot to continue trying to get better. I mean, I, I do find it really interesting though that there's no one age 22 or 23. Which is, you know, this is tennis. Like, it's not like you're a front row forward in rugby. Exactly. Where you need to be like 15 years in it to. It was a sport where where young players kind of. I mean, you could see it particularly in obviously uh, the women's game, which which also was dominated by a woman in her mid 30s. You know, who again is the best player there's ever been. Arguably, you know, it's it's really her and and Steffi Graf. But like. And, and I suppose Martina Navratilova dominated tennis or won Grand Slam titles at an advanced age, but it wasn't as though, I mean, there was, you know, there was other players there who were beating her in finals. I mean, Steffi Graf was able to beat Martina Navratilova. When you saw, it was a sport that was dominated by people really in the first half of their 20s. So Well, you've got guys like Nick Kyrgios, whose name I can never pronounce correctly. Kyrgios, yeah. Uh, Kyrgios, who is supposed to be the next big thing and is ranked 20 in the world, but has some temperamental issues and I, I just see now that he has splurged uh, $180,000 on a car after Wimbledon exit. That's the latest news coming from Australia. So it goes to show that you do need the right mentality along mm. with the talent. That's why there aren't many people like Federer. Murray fits into all this, I think, as possibly the most instructive case of somebody who has kept plugging away dis- despite those obstacles. And if he went down the route of thinking, I'm never going to win one, well, of course he wasn't going to win one, but he's managed to become better because of all these great players who've been ahead of him. So you can do that. Uh, granted, he's the same age as Djokovic, but if you're looking at him coming a few years after yeah. Federer, so there's no point giving well, up just the, because... That's the career arc that it. you would be thinking uh, tennis players in their young 20s would look at and would get the most... Yeah, uh, I might win one at 22, but I from, can win yeah. one at 24 and 25 when these guys all shuffle away mm. if they ever do. Louisa Thomas has written a great piece on Federer for the New Yorker entitled The General Joy of Roger Federer, Wimbledon champion once again. We'll have Louisa on a little bit later on. Ushie McConville and Mike Quirk going to be in to talk dubs and Tyrone's latest Ulster title. David Ford was Richie's guest on the Players' Chair last week. Based on our limited dealings with the Ireland keeper in the past, we were expecting a gentle giant type figure. But he told Richie some really amazing stories about the anger that clouded a lot of his approach to football for quite a few years. He also talked quite a bit about booze. There was a couple of incidents where, yeah, Trap Trap wasn't best pleased with with the boys' behaviour and and performance and stuff, but for, I I think, a group of lads, it it just shows you sometimes how they overcome overcome that as well. Like, you know, that we managed to get victories or or win certain games and stuff, but... Despite being drunk. Yeah, exactly, but I, I think there's no longevity in that. You know what I mean? I think over a short term, you'll get away with that for a certain period and a certain time. But uh, I think to go forward and as as a, as a I, I think Irish I think we're one of the greatest races mm. on this planet. I do think we're a phenomenal 
group of people. And but I do think sometimes we do out of our deep uh, inferiority complex that we don't actually um, we settle for you know second best sometimes. And I think certain elements around how we uh, look and treat alcohol has got a big impact on that. David Ford there, the latest excellent Richie Sadler interviewee. That's all on the World Service, as are all of the episodes of Richie's Players' Chair. You can sign up on secondcaptains.com for five euro a month plus fat. We also jumped into the racist allegations, allegations I should say, Ken, thrown at Conor McGregor last week. Yeah, we were talking about that on Friday. Quite a lot of response to that um, from you know a wide range of responses. Uh, one one thing that a couple of people got in touch with us about, Owen, is to clear up uh, w- one of the particular issues we were talking about. For instance, he talked about the fact that McGregor had used the word cockroaches to the Diaz brothers. Yeah. Uh, and that this was a, you know, a potential example of his, um, of his racist or racially tinged rhetoric or race baiting or whatever. Um, and a couple of people got in touch with us to point out that this... Um, Diaz Brothers uh, Cockroaches business almost certainly came from uh, a scene in Scarface. Uh, you can now hear Al Pacino deliver the line. The Diaz Brothers. What about them? What about Gaspar Gomez? What is he going to do when you start moving 2,000 kids? Fuck Gaspar Gomez and fuck the fucking Diaz Brothers. Fuck them all. I buried those cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's probably the... Uh, the argument we probably should have been aware on, but uh, I, I don't know if it was necessarily a racist epithet. It was one of a number of things. That one of a number, so we're Sean these King up one has, by one. Sean King has pointed out uh, in the past in an article, uh, which we talked about on Friday's episode, in advance of this world tour, he felt that Conor McGregor, what he called Conor McGregor bigot, and felt that, that some of his bigotry was going to come out. And if you listen to Friday's debate, I suppose, Friday's chat, I should say, you can decide for yourself if you're any closer to understanding exactly what went down last week. But that's all on the World Service anyway. Mike Quirk and Oshin McCampbell are ready to go. Oshin, how's the form? All on, how's things? Not bad. Now, Mike, how are things? All good. We want to start, Oshin, with Ronan O'Neill's second goal yesterday. Yeah. Uh, if people didn't see it, it was a close-range lob. Along the lines, if you remember Raul, the great Real Madrid striker, he used to lob the keeper from short distances quite successfully a lot of the time. You don't really see it in Gaelic football too much. Sean Kavanagh said, I would not have been allowed into the house by my dad if I ever tried something <laughs> like that. <laughs> what did you make of it? Do you remember a boy called Karol Poborski did one? Oh, yeah. yeah. The lab. He actually, yeah. Yeah. Six. But, um, yeah, O'Neill, he's cheeky. And uh, I like that about him. Uh, he's Unfortunately, he's just not quick enough to play uh, inter-county football on a regular basis. That's the only thing that's holding him back. He has everything else. He's mm-hmm. an absolutely brilliant finisher. And Tyrone need finishers. Because they don't have enough of them. But, uh, yeah, it was cheeky. And it was audacious. And if that doesn't come off, he's <laughs> probably spending the rest of the year <laughs> wearing number 26. But he's not getting the run. Have you ever tried that yourself? <laughs> have you ever the tried that? Yes. Yes, successfully. Uh, in 1999, we played down in an Ulster final. and We were 13 points up. I'd scored 2-7. And I tried to chip Mickey McVeigh, who's <laughs> six foot twenty, um, <laughs> from about thirty-five yards. Uh, my dad, who was alive at the time, uh, didn't say "Well done" when I come in the door. He said, "Don't ever try that again." <laughs> if you had to pick seven, the, if you had to pick the ball up and stick it in the net, you would have three seven. Nobody would have ever beaten that. <laughs> 
So. As, as it's, well, the record still stands, I believe, for an Ulster final. But yeah. I mean, I think surely if you score two seven, you're allowed, you know, no, take the shackles not off. Not in our house, you weren't. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. What did you make of the miss in the Kildare game? Clucks uh, and save. It was kind of. It, there seemed to be a general consensus that it was Flynn, wasn't it? Yeah. Tried to yeah. tried to take the back of the net off, and that you should be. This is Colin Cooper's big thing that you should always pass it into the net rather than leathering it in. I kind of felt. He didn't put that much power. I just, I think he maybe tried to place it, but just did a bad job of it. Yeah, I think so. I think when you miss it and you're one on one, it's, it's really, really glaring, and uh, you know, it sort of gets overanalyzed. Uh, Porik Hamsi had a similar chance yesterday in the in the throne game, and for a number six who is, well, he's converted corner back playing at number six. Mm. He actually tried to place it, and Cunningham took off a a, a great save. But both of them. Were a nice hate for the keeper. <laughs> I hate saying that, but both of them were a nice hate for the keeper. You know, if, if the one rule that I would say one on one, I would, I would keep it low in that situation. Low and hard, or low and doesn't place. matter. Low. Doesn't matter. So you don't have yeah. to Dean necessarily Rock, pass uh, it into uh, the uh, low. Dean yeah. Rock, uh, just an absolute yeah. textbook example of how to finish one on one. Dean Rock, mm. Dean Rock delayed it a wee bit. Yeah. You know, he delayed it, just give the keeper a wee bit of a chance to move. As soon as he moved, then he he he, he planted it. You know. Mikey could have made an argument before yesterday that Dublin hadn't been playing that well. I mean, there was the Westmead performance, but given the paucity of what mess, what Westmead put up, it's kind of hard to judge them on that one. What do you think after yesterday? I I I think the same thing I thought before yesterday. I think they're they're still the best team in the country. I mean, I mean the, to to be without Paul Flynn and Johnny Cooper and Michael Dara and Connolly out and. You know, Dean Rock gets an early black card, and and you'd hardly you'd hardly hear mention of of the guys they're missing because um, the next guy that comes up and takes the jersey just does a does an equally as impressive job. I mean, Conor Callan. Most people probably hadn't heard of Conor Callan very much before yesterday, and and the guy comes in and gets twelve points and takes over free taking duties and and looks like he's been there for ten years as an all star every year. And um and and the same with Paul Mannion just coming up and taking a jersey you now and looks really comfortable. Uh, it, it's just Again, I, like I, I wouldn't have bought into this thing that Dublin were on the slide. I didn't think Kildare were ever going to win that game yesterday, uh, despite the kind of growing murmurings that people thought they might give them a good rattle. Um, and people were excited that the game was so close. And, and what was it, nine or ten points in the finish? And people are, you know, getting excited about how close the Leinster final was. But single figures, they're... single figures, Mike. Finally. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a triumph. You know, that's a triumph uh, against Dublin. All single figures, but look, they, they are they are what we thought they were. They're 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 the best team out there, and and they're going to take some some hell of a beating to to try and get someone to beat them. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about it in the same way that you know we used to think that a goal every two games. You know, when Ruud van Nistelrooy started playing for Manchester United, and he was like better than a goal every two games, and we thought this was just this is rewriting the history books, you know. And then Messi and Ronaldo come along, and like it's a goal a game. If you're not scoring at a goal a game, then you're you're just not at it. I mean, I think what Dublin are doing with these guys who at the start of the year you wouldn't even have said are going to make the team, like Mannion, eight points from play against Westmead, as you say, Conor Callahan, twelve points six from play. Like it's not even you know they're bona fide superstars that are putting up these ridiculous, nearly unheard of numbers. In Leinster semi-finals and finals, it's it's guys who are who are basically doing that because they think if they don't do it, they're not going to make the team. Yeah, and, and I mean, look at even 
is Bernard Brogan for another example? I'm sure the whole country is, is telling us that Bernard Brogan is finished and he's gone and he's over the hill. And he came on yesterday and was a five or six points from play again in a in a you know a super performance by him. And 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 you were thinking, well, okay, we, we maybe we don't have to worry so much about Bernard Brogan now. And then he comes on and he does that. And and they're just you know, and it's a great credit to, to Jim Gavin and and the, their coaching and their management, the way they have these guys just so highly motivated that whatever your role is, you know, whether it's a starter coming on or trying to get in that squad it, it's just incredible the way they, they, they've sustained it for so long and the way they keep going to the well and they're performing at such a high level and like you know your Conor Callan is at the opposite end of the spectrum to Bernard Brogan but both of them were equally as impressive in their in their roles yesterday which is just for everybody else it's you know, it's nearly disheartening looking at it at this stage because you're saying, geez, will you give us some, give us some bit of a chink there to where, where we might be able to get something out of you in August and September. But they just they just look as good as they ever have. Yeah, and Ushin, it's weird. I went back and checked because I was talking to someone in the press box about it yesterday. The 2013 All-Ireland Final. And you would say this is the team that it is. Half that team is now gone. Yeah. And it's not even, you know, two cornerbacks swapped out and, you know, a wing forward, whatever. It's like the absolute heartbeat of the 2013 team gone with no demunition in quality whatsoever Michael Dara Paul Flynn Bernard Brogan you know well they're all still around a lot a lot of a few of them are still around yeah but none of them diminished roles are injured or coming on like Brogan did which is that in itself is I mean I nearly think it's it's you know when you talk about great team and you're we're definitely now in the territory of talking about this Dublin team as one of the greatest teams of all time but you know Kerry won eight All-Irelands in 11 years and you know there was like five guys who won all eight of those All-Irelands, you know, a huge swathe of them won five or six All-Irelands. Like, the level of turnover with no diminution in results is, it's nearly unheard of. I mean, it's it's crazy. <clears throat> yeah, it is. It's, it's unbelievable. I think the the biggest thing for me is that, like, I think Johnny Cooper is a super at what he does. Corner, super old-fashioned cornerback. You know, people didn't bat an eyelid when he wasn't named in the in the first 15. There was some mention of an injury, but I don't. Yeah, know but but people issues. people you know there was no there's no you know perceived can't, can't pa- panic. Not in yeah, there there's no perceived there. panic or anything like that. And you know, same with Bernard Brogan. You know, Dean Rock is the black card. You know, Bernard Brogan comes in. It's seamless. You know what I mean? And, and I, he, honestly, I can't think of one player on that team that you know you take out of that team and the whole thing, the whole system falls Justin. apart. Maybe Clarkson. <laughs> maybe Clarkson. Yeah. Maybe Good spot on. Um, I'm, I'm on form this morning. What I meant to say was outfit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, but even the likes of James McCarthy. Uh, I like. I I really think James McCarthy is one of the players who sort of makes them tick in that you know he is you know he's an absolute machine when it comes to getting up and down the field. But you know the biggest compliment I can give them is that you know it's everything seems to be so seamless. You know, you, you switch in one player for another, and and it's it's seamless. You know, he seems as if, like Mike said, like he's like he's a veteran of this team. That also says a lot for the atmosphere and for you know that actual dressing room because there's a lot of players that take a little bit of time to bed in in certain dressing rooms. Conor Callan, even speaking, we spoke last night after the game, and you think, you know, this guy. You know, he wasn't just there to be a part of the dub setup or get a jersey or you know uh, get looked after the same way as the rest of the boys. He was hungry to get a jersey, and Jim Gavin has created that within the within the Dublin setup. Even going back to two thousand and thirteen, off that 
it wasn't just the same as that in 2013. You take a Michael Darren McCauley or a Bernard Brogan out of the, out of the team on any given day, and like it's you know people are talking about it. People are saying you know how they're going to cope without him. People don't talk like that anymore. You know whatever the team the dub's name, you just you just look at it and you go, they're still good enough. Brogan's performance. Bernard Brogan's getting a fair bit of praise for his attitude in the last couple of seasons when he's starting to have to play a different kind of a role. In fairness, I don't know how difficult that is to motivate yourself to be a substitute when, firstly, you know you're going to be brought in. Like He's always brought in when the game is still on the line and when they need top players. And also, you're possibly going to win an All-Ireland title, maybe probably going to win an All-Ireland title. So I wouldn't have thought the motivational difficulties should be that hard to overcome. But I suppose you are talking about a former Footballer of the Year, the star forward for so many years, having to accept the fact that he's viewed now as somebody who's often not worth, worth a place in the starting team. And well, that's one of the reasons why I still think there's another year in Bernard Brogan after this year, because I see Bernard Brogan now. Um, I think in his mindset, he's thinking I can still start for this team. I can still get seventy minutes out of myself, and I'm going to prove that. And I don't mind being that uh, impact sub or that person who comes off the bench. But if I'm playing well enough, I know I'm going to be playing. But I'm prepared to play the role that I'm asked to play. And that's why I think he's got it in his head that in his final year, he's going to be a bit part of this team, or not a bit part, but he's going to be somebody who's going to be a last 20 minutes or something like that. Mm. I don't think he's he's that yet. He's I, not there yet in his no, head. No, I, I don't think so. He shouldn't think, be either. Yeah, I don't think so. I think there's another year in him at... You know, at the top level, he tapered off a little bit last year, but I think he's timed his run slightly different this year. I think he played a hell of a lot of league football um, last year, not as much this year, and I think he's somebody who he looks fresh. He looks fresh. He just looks hungry for the game. You know, they shipped a big score, Mike. Is there anything there, and what Kildare produced from an attacking point of view? Do you think that any other team is going to cling to? I mean. I, I thought to be fair, Kildare they 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 gave it. You know, they made it entertaining for for as long as they could. I thought the the pace and kind of athleticism they came to. You know, there will be a team you, you'd hope, and in, in you know, once that group can stay together and Keane O'Neill keeps getting the best out of them, that you'd hope in in two or three years' time that this is a crowd that can really really push that kind of that Leinster that Leinster final close, and 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 that they could maybe look at toppling them in that in that province. Because I I thought you know, Feely the feeling of him in the middle of the field, his mobility, his running, his football was just you know class to watch. Really enjoyed him. Uh, you know, pace did like the halfback line, crib and breaking free. Like they, they they showed that you know by by either launching high ball into the square, which made you know a couple of you know you had a couple of uncomfortable moments, and also by running it at fierce pace through the heart of the defence. Like every team, it shows kind of weaknesses, and you and you get through, and you get a bit of joy out of it. No, they probably didn't have the maybe the finishers to to, to take full advantage of those opportunities, but. They definitely showed a couple of weaknesses in in the Dublin defence, particularly. Uh, and I thought Fenton, I thought Fenton got a lot of it. I don't think he's playing at the pitch of where he was at, maybe, um, you know, in the last two years. And there, there's little bits and pieces there that you take from it, from from maybe a Tyrone or a Kerry or from you know one of the top three or four teams. But um, I, I I just think Kildare looked like that that kind of a youthful burst, and they were excited to be there, and and they really showed they have something about them. But it's going to take another couple of years before they they maybe get over the hump. What about Tyrone, Oshin? They look. They sound pretty confident. They look pretty good yesterday. Just judging from a lot of the post-match stuff, it feels like they. I think they think there's an All Ireland in there, do they? I think they do because I think they always think like that. I think you know, 
one of the things I had to do yesterday was guard against complacency going into the game, and I think they did that successfully going into the game. They go six two up, and I think then, you know, you could just feel you could just feel it, and you could see it. One moment, um, Manny Donnelly gets the ball. He plays a one two with Peter Hart. Peter Hart's storming through the middle. He's about four yards ahead of his man. All he has to do is slip it to him, and he doesn't. He wheels out and he takes a a, a, a laid back lazy shot. Uh, from 30 yards he should normally kick over the bar it doesn't go over the bar and just in that moment down started to play a little bit and they could see a bit of a chink and you all of a sudden you realize the thrown attitude was now wasn't what it should be and um, from that point on for the next 15 minutes down more or less got on top of of throne now throne obviously uh, i don't know if mickey hart does the the flying boots or the teacups or or I don't even know if he has it in him to get into a rage but if he has it he would have been absolutely raging at half time because it was just sloppy you know and they just took the foot off the accelerator and uh, and then the second half we seen more of what they were about they were a lot more aggressive second half uh, I thought um, there's something missing with them really? yeah there's something missing with them there's, they're just when they're, when they're put on, I think they're a team when put on the maximum pressure. I don't think they'd live with the, dub, the dubs. I don't think they live with the dubs. And I think. Um, were they not put under pressure yesterday, as you were saying, and came through with fine colours in the second half? Yeah, they did, but it wasn't a sustained pressure. Like, if Down can, if Down can cause them problems for 15 minutes, then I can only imagine what a Dublin or maybe even a Kerry uh, could do to them. But look, it, it all remains to be seen. I. I I just as I say, I just can't put my finger on it properly, but there's something just not there's not there's something just not quite right about them, and I don't think I I don't think this team's ready to win any in All Ireland. They have won another Ulster though, Mike, which is an achievement in itself. Not maybe not to be sniffed at for any county, but particularly a team is at the same manager for so long. How does Mickey Hart continue to? pull performances out of the same group of players it goes against what we hear you know the perceived wisdom in most sports but you do get the odd example like Brian Cody or Mickey Hart or somebody who stays around forever has these new bunches of players and still gets certainly gets his message across that's that's a really difficult part of management or coaching is 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 listening to the same voice over and over again. No matter how, no matter how many new things you come up with, it's still the same voice saying saying generally the same things. But no, Tyrone, no more than no more than Dublin have gone through a regeneration of their own, and there's a lot of those players from from that team of the Naughties that that were so successful have, have obviously left, and new guys have come in. But um, the thing the thing I see with them is is just like they had ten different scores yesterday, you know, and 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 they they're going to need ten different scores to actually come compete with the likes of Dublin or, or uh, well Dublin are your parameter they're, if, if, if Tyrone are talking about winning All-Ireland you're going to have to be Dublin to, to get to that and, 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 and like they're going to need 10 and 11 and 12 different scores because they don't have they don't have a Stephen O'Neill now or, 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 a, or a Mulligan that's going to get them that's going to get them 7 or 8 or 9 points or maybe 2-3 I mean Ron O'Neill got 2 goals yesterday but I, I don't think he's going to get you 2 goals every game um, and, and they, they, they're going to need you know, a massive spread of scoring to actually make up for, you know, not having that does, you know, as as much as we hate the term, a kind of a marquee, a real high level inside forward or, or two that are going to get you big, big scores in the game. And I think that's that's ultimately going to be their, their downfall, that they're just not going to 
they're not going to score enough to, to put away a Dublin or, or maybe a Kerry. But defensively, you know, around the middle of the field, everything, they're solid, they're compact, they're really good, everything that you'd want there. But it's when they get forward, they're relying so much on that running game and that half-back line and midfielders to, to, to go and get them scores. I, I'm just not sure in the biggest games if that's going to get them over the line. I was just going to say about, you know, one of Mickey Hart's tricks is that he seems to reward how you're going in training. And he proved that yesterday by using the likes of O'Neill, who had only got a couple of minutes in the championship, a couple of token minutes, just to keep him interested. Uh, Lee Brennan, who I've sort of been raving about for some time. I actually picked him on TV as one, uh, one to watch. He didn't even get a minute. <laughs> I, thought he was due to, I thought he'd start that game. He was that good at the end of the, of the Derry game. Uh, he came on and kicked two points. Uh, you know, he was involved in everything. Uh, he came on yesterday. He, did a, he had a little cameo. He scored a point. Um, I think he's somebody who Mickey Hart is just keeping on the wraps and he produced when when needed. You're sticking with him. Yeah, no, I, I think he's somebody that has the potential to be like an O'Neill or a Mulligan or a Canavan. But uh, he seems to be able to keep them interested in that. Like, Sean Cavanagh wasn't having a good game yesterday, 45 minutes whipped off, you know, and that's a good thing to have in your armory. Um, and the fact that he could use any of those subs. Looking through those substitutions, he could use any of them. Declan McClure come on yesterday, you know, had a very, very accomplished game. Got, actually got man of the match in some some sectors. But even the likes of him, Kieran McGeary, you know, you can rotate a lot of those players. It's a bit like Dublin, you can rotate. Like you, Mickey Hart could conceivably uh, pick 15 and start six different players and bring six different players on. And again, it probably wouldn't disrupt them that much. It's a lot of lake for lake. But I think in there, you know, that being a positive, in there lays part of the problem in that they don't have that one forward that you sort of can re- kick that ball into. No, Mar- uh, no, um, even Mark Bradley. Mark Bradley's a hell of a forward, but he struggles to win ball in the big games. Quick one, Oshin, on the draw, which pits Kieran McGinney against his former team, Armagh against Kildare. Yeah, I was sitting at the uh, at the TV this morning, or the radio this morning. I was I was just thinking, please give us down, please give us down, one more chance to down, <laughs> and we didn't get down. Monaghan uh, got down, uh, which looks like a good draw for them. Uh, Armagh versus Kildare. On the face of it, after watching Kildare yesterday, not a good draw for us at all. The one positive is Kevin Feely looks as if he's going to miss the game. He's accumulated three black cards. That gives us a, a chance, an opportunity. We didn't play great at the weekend, but what I like about us now is that we played some unbelievably silky football during the league and didn't even get promotion. In fact, lost some games we should have won, and now we're winning ugly. Mm. And there's nobody likes winning ugly better than normal. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's if you're ever redrawing the county crest, <laughs> some way of, whatever winning ugly is in Latin, just put <laughs> draping across the top there. But I mean, yeah, it's it's weird though. I mean, watching Armagh tip on on Saturday evening, I mean, there's still plenty of really good footballers in Armagh. You know, like Kildare. I mean, it's not like they're going to have to recover from the shock of you know losing to Dublin. Yeah. I'm sure they were in the back of their minds. They were thinking, right, last twelve, that's fine. Um, you know, but I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot to fear from Armagh's point of view either. No, just I still don't. No, like I, I can't. I still can't figure out how we're playing. I still can't figure out how we play from one, you know, from one game to the next. Um, 
I know we started with Gregory McCabe up front and we moved him back and he played as a sweeper, but we were probably hurt more by Tipperary when we had a sweeper than when we didn't, you know, in the second half. So that's sort of worrying, but I don't know what way we played against Calera. Maybe we play a little bit more defensive um, because I think they're a team that could hurt us with their, you know, with their ability to run the teams and, and, and even their ability to get that first-time ball into Lex Brophy and that. Mike, thanks a million. Thanks a lot. Okay, yes. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ear. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. The interesting thing about Conal Callahan, guys, is that he's continued to play his hurling this year as well. And to a reasonable level, you could probably <laughs> you could probably say. Shane Stapleton tweeted O'Callaghan's medal hall since September last year. Okay. All Ireland, this is since September 2016. All Ireland senior football champion, Dublin senior hurling, Leinster senior hurling club level, All Ireland senior hurling club level, mm-hmm. Leinster under 21 football, All Ireland under 21 football, and now Leinster senior football, and possibly on the way to another All Ireland <laughs> senior title. It's not bad. That's pretty decent going, I would say. It's yeah. Not a bad record. Who old, is old. likely to be up next for Dublin? Murphy, everything. Well, up. yeah, it's like uh, it's shaping up. Uh, it's, well, the picture is becoming a little clearer. Uh, Dublin are going to play one of Monaghan, Down or Armagh. Armagh can't play Kildare again uh, in their quarterfinal. The draw was made this morning. Armagh play Kildare. Monaghan play Down. Drone will play one of Monaghan, Armagh or Kildare in their quarterfinal. Roscommon play one of Donegal, Mayo or Cork. Kerry will play one of Donegal, Galway or Mayo. So the Roscommon quarterfinal winner will play the Kerry quarterfinal winner. And you'd have to say out of all of that, you're probably looking at Mayo and, Roscommon, Mayo and Kerry. I just wrote off quite a few counties there. <laughs> and then the winner of the Dublin quarterfinal uh, plays the Tyrone quarterfinal. So that's how it was drawn up. Basically, mm-hmm. the Leinster champions, if everything goes to plan, will play the Ulster champions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we we were talking there about Tyrone in the con- in the context of whether they they'll be able to put it up to Dublin. I don't know if it if it helps teams. Necessarily. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it helps Mayo <laughs> to play teams in semi-finals as opposed to finals because they have enough baggage going into Ireland finals I mean if you're Tyrone if you're a, a team who haven't played in all Ireland finals before I would say you'd rather get Dublin in a semi-final and try and handle the build up to that which is perhaps not too dissimilar to a build up to an Ulster final or Ireland quarter final and take your shot at Dublin in the semi-finals as opposed to taking a shot at them in the final I think yeah. that, that would be how Tyrone would prefer to have it and that's how it's going to be if uh, all the provincial winners uh, Proceed. You have just made yourself an enemy in about three quarters of the country. So, Roscommon certainly. Uh, I'm predicting Galway's demise as well. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just calling it as I see it. All. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Louisa Thomas has been covering Wimbledon this year and has written an excellent piece on Roger Federer for the New Yorker. Louisa, great to chat to you again. It's great to be here. One of the primary angles of this piece is that Federer, part of his success is about how much he seems to enjoy the sport and everything about it, which, you know, you yes. would you, you'd assume that people who, at that level all enjoy what they're doing, but not necessarily, that's not necessarily the case. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think there seems to be some sort of um, false contract between fans and athletes that um, because they're playing a game, they must be totally grateful and always enjoy it. And we fans tend to forget that it's a job and that nobody loves their job every day, and that there are particular pressures in tennis that make it especially excruciating at times. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard game. And I think that it's, um, 
Roger Federer handles it differently than a lot of other players. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of players and, and even the ones who really do seem to love tennis don't love a lot about it. They don't love the travel. They don't love being away from home for most of the year. They don't love staying in a chain hotel, you know, in a different country every week. They don't love practice. You know, they, they don't love the repetition. There are a lot of things about it that they do love, but there are a lot of things that they sort of put up with. And he sort of seems to love everything about it, the whole thing. I mean, who loves press conferences? Not even reporters love press conferences. <laughs> Um, so I think that Kurt Pressure, for instance, you know, he, he came out and said during Wimbledon, he said, you know, I was really nervous before the second round. And then he said, I don't love that. And then he goes, but I do appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I like it. It reminds me that I care. I mean, and if anyone else said that, I would sort of say that they were putting the, the typical positive spin on it. And yeah. I, I would sort of roll my eyes. But when he says it, I, I sort of believe it. Is this what gives him the serenity, do you think, that seems to freak out his opponents it can't be easy playing against a guy who just looks so unruffled by it all i i think that it's got to be a huge part of it um i mean obviously the the biggest part of what freaks out his opponents is just how good he is <laughs> i mean he's just you know one of the most talented human beings at anything in the world um at the same time i think that that kind of being at ease um is has got to be a huge part of it because and, and I did try to write about this but there's a sort of sense of of general peace about him and that can that can be unnerving I think probably to a competitor he was out last year he comes back wins the Australian Open takes the clay court season off comes back wins Wimbledon this guy is now sort of bending the sport to his own will at this stage. I don't know. If this, I don't know if this has ever been done before. Obviously, the amount of titles he's won it's has never incredible. been done before. But the way <laughs> the way he's doing, he's found a new way to do it now, and it's basically to just pick and choose. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, let's not kind of get a, too far ahead of ourselves. Roger Federer was has been very, very near the top of the game for a very long time. So it's not like this astounding comeback that nobody saw coming, um, in the sense that we didn't think he could ever win another major again. There were certainly people who didn't think he could, but it's not like Pete Sampras being unseated at the US Open and winning it. I mean, this is, he has been in semifinals and finals of Grand Slams for many years, even after his amazing run. Um, so I don't think that there was any question that he had it in him or he had the skills, but to take that amount of time off, to sort of reset and to come back and improve player, I think is what is so astonishing to people. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not, really just doing it with a kind of diminished skill set in a in a somewhat devastated landscape although certainly the fact that the people who would be his main competition Djokovic and Annie Murray have been struggling a lot this past year certainly helps his position but he's really he's improved his backhand his serving is incredible um he has mixed up his tactics he's playing a little bit differently tactically than he was a couple of years ago. I mean, this guy is, is still improving and that's phenomenal for any player who's been at the top of the game for a long time, let alone one who is about to turn 36 in a couple of days. What do you think he has changed tactically? Um, you know, when he was with Stefan Emberg, he, he came to net an awful lot. Um, he still comes to net quite a lot and is very effective there, but he's not doing it with quite the same frequency that he did net 
uh, a couple years ago. He is hitting his backhand far more aggressively. That's the thing that people tend to talk about most. Um, I've been really impressed with his returning, which I think is a totally underrated part of his game. He's got really good reflexes and he mixes up his returning positions. Um, he is moving the ball around the service box um, very effectively. Um, he doesn't hit the hardest serves, but he might just hit the most accurate ones. Um, I mean, I think that uh, it's a combination of all these things. And he really has also done a very good job of not getting drawn into... He can, he can win long rallies, there's no question about that. But he doesn't get drawn into these really long grinding points. He's a way of sort of mixing things up and, and shot making and and so that way he, he can rely on his timing and his skills and, and do the things that he does best instead of sort of having to have the stamina of a 24-year-old. He said something very interesting afterwards, Louise. A winning eight Wimbledons is not something you, never, you can ever aim for, in my opinion. If you do, you must have so much talent and parents and the coaches that push you from the age of three on who think of you like a project. I was not that kid. I was just a really normal guy growing up in Baal, hoping to make a career on the tennis tour. Is Federer something of an outlier in that he's achieved so much so much success while coming from a relatively normal background? Um, you hear a lot about the tennis factories and the tennis parents and the people who are um, born to play the sport in the sense that they are born and then they are molded to play the sport yeah. very, very, very early on. There are, and there's a lot of truth to that. There are a lot of really great champions who we're never allowed to be anything else. And I think Roger Federer is not one of those. So in that sense, he is an outlier. Um, at the same time, there are certainly other examples. Um, John McEnroe is a famous one. He went to college after he was already almost 20 in the world. Um, I think that there are, are there are a number of examples of, of people who have different interests. Or I mean, the Williams sisters are an example of someone who, who crossed kind of the bridge because on the one hand, they literally were born to be Wimbledon champions. On the other hand, they clearly have very, very well-developed personalities and interests off the court and, um, you know, and, and lots of kind of things going for them that have nothing to do with tennis. So that's an example of someone who, or two people rather, who have really successfully kind of made the transition from the tennis world into the real world while still, you know, commanding, commanding the tennis world. Um, but it is rare. I mean, it's hard. I mean, specialization is, is such a dominant thing in sports in general, but in particularly in tennis, because partly because it is so punishing and so many kids are beginning so early and it is a, a sport where you can really, um, it's like learning a language. You can really yeah. develop a lot at a very young age. So a lot of, um, families are, are driven to do that. And, and Roger Federer, you know, at the same time, you know, playing soccer helps his tennis. You can see it in his footwork. You know, the fact that he was a good footballer as a kid is, is obvious to me when you see how balletic his feet are. So, I mean, it, it comes with, um, you know, it comes with positives too. There's a nice line in your piece. Game. Yeah. There's a nice line in your piece, Louisa. He long ago became the paragon, even a parody of gentility, calm and regal. There is a, there's the sense with Federer sometimes that he's almost too good to be true. Have you observed him at close quarters behind the scenes? Is that the way it was? You know, one of my favorite, um, if you've ever looked at the uh, Twitter account, PseudoFed, as in 
P-S-E-U-D-O, like pseudo, but also like the, the medicine. Pseudofed is one of the funniest things on, on the internet. And it's um, written in um, Roger Federer's aristocratic voice. He's constantly referring to the stats. And, and the, in, on Pseudofed, in Pseudofed's world, the whole universe revolves around Roger Federer. And it's hilarious. I mean, and it plays on his kind of, um, his sort of blithe and appealing arrogance um, and also his kind of aristocratic posture. But it's, all, the guy is also beautifully warm and it's, it's, it's really funny and I encourage everyone to check it out because you get a sense of the, the parody version of, of Roger Federer. But at the same time, you know, the real man could not seem more, and I, I don't know him personally really well enough to say that he, um, or at all really to say that he is this way in real life or not, but you get the sense that few people are, are more kind of generous and easygoing and he's the guy who will stop in the hall and say hi to people that he barely knows and you know um, I describe in the piece him coming out of his way to sort of he spotted a player who had just won his first ever um, he had his first ever Grand Slam win in the main draw and he, he came down the hall to shake his hand and congratulate him and that's a really easy thing for him to do. You know, we shouldn't give him too many points for that. But at the same time, he didn't have to do that. And he seemed really happy to do that. I mean, just seemed happy to be there. I mean, it was just this kind of lovely moment. And I, that was a kind of glimpse, I think, of, of, of someone who's just, just doing well in the world, you know, and happy to bring people along with him. I thought we might end up sitting here talking about Venus Williams winning along with Roger Federer again. That was certainly the angle oh, yeah. a lot of people were thinking. She, she didn't give the journalists much afterwards. There were people trying to get to the bottom of, you know, how, how the hell do you end up losing a set six love after seemingly being in such good form during the tournament? And she was just quite, well, quite short with them, but quite gracious about her opponent and just said that she played better than me. And that was that. What did you make of the non-performance? I mean, I don't know if she had too much to say, to be honest. For one, it turned so suddenly. And I think that she had two set points in the first set. And the first set was very competitive and at a pretty high level, high level. And suddenly things just turned against her. And instead of sort of digging in, she just um, broke in some way. And it was painful to watch. And it must have been painful to go through. I mean, I have no question. And I don't necessarily think there is an explanation that she could have cogently given in the hour after the match or two hours after the match. I mean, it wasn't physical. It wasn't, I mean, the the type of errors that she was hitting also surprised me. They were really um, bad. I mean, they were not kind of, she wasn't going for lines and missing them by a few inches. She was just sailing balls. I mean, it was like, she just wanted to be under a rock by that point and you know who can blame her because this goes back to what we were talking to about at the beginning tennis is really hard i mean and it's a mental sport as much as anything else you can talk about how momentum doesn't exist in in other sports or you can talk about how different points are independent and things like that but in tennis it's really true that the mind um plays such a, a big big role and hers turned against her. Louisa Thomas, great to catch up. Thanks a million for that. Thank you so much. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck <laughs> happened? No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city 
knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. With Venus, I think some of the journalists, let's be honest, they probably wanted to hear her say, yeah, the collapse was something to do with the Sjogren's syndrome, mm. the autoimmune disease that she has. It really did look as though she lost all of her fight very suddenly and there were suggestions this might have been the reason that maybe uh, you know the amateur <laughs> doctors out there mm. uh, diagnosed this as the problem the big news angle would have been venus coming out and saying yeah i've been battling this thing for years and you know some days are tougher than others but we move on but she's within her rights to say very little other than to congratulate her opponents uh, magruta who's a new wimbledon champion Murph, i'm gonna ask you we flirted around the subject earlier on okay the big question of the day put a number on federer and grand slams 21 21 for post-prime Federer or for full-career Federer? <laughs> full-career Federer. So he's going to win... What's he on? He's going to win two he's more? He's on 19 now. He's going to win two more. Ken, you might foresee him winning another 10, given your disdain for the up-and-coming talent. He's on 19. What's he going to finish on? Oh, uh, I'll say 22. And on that thrilling debate, <laughs> we will end today's proceedings. My fault. I asked the question. Thanks, guys. Uh, so. Thank you all. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Sure. Thanks very much. Take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.